before we get into the passage this evening, um, I was trying to remember if I told you this last week. Um, I don't think I did, so I'm going to tell you now. Whenever we look at Romans, we have to remember who's writing it. And you may think, well, we know it's the Apostle Paul, but who was Paul? Paul was a Pharisee. He was a lawyer. That means that as he writes the book of Romans, he is writing as a lawyer. And you'll see that as we get into chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6. Because what he does is he asks questions, but then immediately answers them. He perceives the questions that are going to be asked in response to what he's just said. And so actually what the epistle to the Romans is, it's an argument. It's not a nasty argument. If you want, it's an apologetic. It's a defense of the faith. Here's what you think. Well, here's my answer. And because of that, then you think this. And so here's my answer to that. The reason why I tell you that is because we need to understand how to understand this book. And so with the development of our new website, I want to point you to that because it might be that you need to go back and listen again. Not for my benefit, but for yours. Growing up in my late teen years and early 20s, um, I valued listening to a sermon again because it allowed me to catch some of the things I missed. And so if you go to the website, you can either watch just the sermon again or you can listen to it and download it there. Or if you want it delivered directly to your mobile phone, you can do that. Um, you can search for Romans, Heart of the Gospel, and it will take you to somewhere where you can click subscribe, and every Monday you will get uh, the Roman sermon delivered to you that you can listen. If you have any problems with that, speak to me, and uh, we can get that sorted for you. The whole point is that we'll learn, that actually we learn the entirety of Romans. You'll know that every time we finish a book, I always like to remind you how many books we have read together. And technology allows us to do that and to keep up to date with what has been taught. As I prayed in the prayer meeting, it's not for our benefit as a, as a congregation that we can say we do this. It's there so that God's people will be blessed as we learn and study together. So if that's something that would be of use to you, the website is there. Go to the teaching section and you'll see the Romans series there or search for it. Um, and you'll be able to get it directly to your phone. But let's get into our passage this evening, Romans 1, 18 to 32. And last week as we began this new series, and the opening verses of 1 to 17, they displayed what we can only say is Paul's heart for the gospel. He's writing to that church in Rome, a church that, remember, he did not plant, and he wrote to encourage them in the gospel— and as I've shared a little bit tonight, to, to give them a good argument for the gospel. But he also wanted to introduce himself to them. They probably were aware of who he was, but had never met them. And as we'll discover at, towards the end of this letter, he planned to go and visit them. Of course he did, but he went as a prisoner to Rome as he appealed to Caesar for his case. But the important thing to remember from that introduction is Paul sees himself as one of them. He doesn't rush in announcing his apostolic credentials. Rather, he describes himself as, in verse 1, as a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart. 
for the gospel of God. This again demonstrates his heart, and it's overflowing, and that's the one thing you're going to notice again with this letter. Paul's heart overflows. It's almost as if he is typing so quickly he can't get the words on the screen. Of course, he didn't type it. But, but he can't write with his quill and ink as fast as he would like, and he's just bubbling over because he loves the gospel. This is not just good news to Paul. This is the very essence of life. You see, because of his love for the gospel, Paul sees himself as he truly is. He sees himself as a servant. And he may be an apostle, but that is secondary to the love that he has for the good news that Jesus died and rose again for sinners like him. And the great crescendo of last week's passage came in verses 16 to 17. Again, one of those moments where, if we're honest, it doesn't actually fit into his flow, but yet it's just an outburst where he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And as we move on now into the rest of Romans, this word righteousness is going to be the thrust of Paul's argument. He's mentioned it here in verse 18, and now he's going to go on to explain it in the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. So in these verses, we see Paul's heart overflowing, and now he is springboarded into what not only is the rest of the chapter, but the rest of the letter. And so it's to verse 18 that we now turn to see what Paul has to say about the gospel. And he begins perhaps in an unusual way. It's not maybe how we would think a gospel presentation should be given, because Paul wants our focus to be on God's wrath on unrighteousness. He wants to make clear that there is a problem, and the only solution to that problem is Jesus Christ, only through the grace and mercy of God. I have one point for this evening, one only for all of these verses, and this is it, on righteousness that deserves God's wrath. That is the overarching message of all of these verses. So let's see what these verses have to teach us. So we've just read in verse 17, righteousness of God is revealed. It has been revealed to us. So verse 18 tells us that as much as we can know the righteousness of God, we can also know the wrath of God. And God's wrath is poised to fall because of human ungodliness and unrighteousness, again in verse 18. And you see, the general human tendency that we know and Paul knows is that humanity does not seek and honor God's truth. Rather, it suppresses it. It puts it down. It doesn't want to love it. It doesn't want to live it. And Paul is likely describing the religious outlook and what it results is in moral squalor of the Roman world as he frequently observes it. But it is not only Gentiles who are guilty of these sins. 
Because Paul will speak specifically to forms of unrighteousness amongst his fellow Jews and indeed of the entire human race in later sections. So that's where he set us off in verse 18. And as we get into verses 19 and 20, we see an explanation of how humans, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. What we don't realize as humanity, if we haven't read this before, what we don't realize is there is compelling proof of God that exists among humans. Because verse 19 tells us, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. This is what we call a natural knowledge of God. It's the sense experienced by people in all places, in all times, that there is something out there or something beyond the cares of the world, something that's deep within us inside our human existence, our human consciousness that transcends mere humanity. We know that there is something else there. It's the truth that we are not alone. Now, I am a science fiction fan. I like my Star Treks and I like my Star Wars. That's about it. But I'm not talking about little green men from Mars. I'm talking about something that is implanted within us that lets us know the way we are designed that there is a God who made us and also a knowledge that there's a God who loves us. You see, it is God himself in his design of humanity who discloses his existence, especially through the created order. And that's what Paul goes on to address, that there is an order to creation that must be upheld. You see, in nature's vastness, as well as the intricacy of everything we see around us, there is a knowledge of God and verse 20 confirms, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, speaking of the world outside of Christendom, they are without excuse. Look at it there, and, and do you notice that Paul says, God can be clearly perceived. This underscores all of the evidence for the existence of the Creator God, but man in Paul's era and still today manages to deny such knowledge, and it does it in things like atheism, where we say there is no God, or we manage to twist it into perverted forms of false religions. And so what we do is we create our own God, and that is namely ourselves because we refuse to acknowledge the one true living God. And it is a given in much of modern Western thought that God is essentially unknowable. But Paul argues here that this position is not philosophical brilliance, but obstinate misinterpretation of the cosmic evidence. So there is no excuse. Paul, prophetically writing for every time in human history, that this is not a philosophical argument, but it's actually on the parts of those who will not believe in the one true God, obstinance 
refusal to acknowledge that there is a God. And that's where he leads in verse 21. People make up excuses about their knowledge of God. Humanity's refusal, our refusal to acknowledge God in creation, results in intellectual and moral bankruptcy. People can't flee his judgment by declaring him to be relevant. I've often told you about the little man that sits outside the man's gate in the white van. He was there at lunchtime today, checking all of our speeds going home from church. So just beware. But in Malawi, whenever we were there, you didn't have people like that. Instead, you had police officers on the side of the road with what we all used to call the hairdryer. And what they would do is they would set themselves up as you would enter a trading center. But of course, that trading center would have no limit. In other words, the sign that had been there had been stolen and was probably now the roof of someone's house. And so you would drive unknowingly into a 50 kilometer an hour trading center at 80 kilometers an hour. And what would the police do? Of course, positioning themselves perfectly. Well, they would book you and you'd pay your 5,000 kwacha fine. Sounds a lot, doesn't it? It's a fiver. And no points. But just because I would argue there was no sign didn't mean that I wasn't guilty. Just because there was no sign didn't mean that the rules weren't there. I had to pay the fine, even though I was not guided by the law as to when a trading center began and when it ended. So missing that speed sign in a town doesn't mean that I can go as fast as I can without getting caught or face the penalty. And so given what we, or given what can be known of God through natural observation, not to honor him as God or give thanks to him is a disastrous course of action, which in reality is inaction. We cannot argue and say we did not know because we do know. And we are each accountable for our sin. Now let's take a pause here because this is quite heavy. <laughs> this is not the kind of gospel presentation we might expect straight out of the gate. But yet Paul begins here because it's important. And you know, we might get exercised this evening and say, well, Paul just goes too far. And in fact, other recent commentators have said that Paul goes far too, too far in this. But he doesn't because Paul's heart is that no one will be left without doubt of what the reality of our human situation is. We try, as Paul goes on to say in verse 23, to recreate God by way of idols. But these will never be who God is. They are inanimate objects that can do nothing. In the American author Bill Bryson's book, The Body, he constantly admires the magnificent design of the brain, the tongue, the bones, the hand, and the cartilage. And he makes statements such as, your brain is designed to help you in every way it can. And he quotes experts who say, most of the best technology that exists on earth is right here inside of us. Don't you just cry out and say how right you are because we have been created, we have been designed. There is a God who knows us and, makes, and who made us. Bryson believes in design, but he denies a designer. 
other than evolution. See, that's the trap we can fall into. We can start to think like the majority of the world thinks, that actually there is no God, so therefore we're not made and we're just here by accident to create our own purpose, our own identity, and our own path in life. That is a great risk to take, Paul says, because when we do, we set ourselves up as our own God, and we worship self rather than the designer and creator. And when people refuse to honor or thank God, they turn to idolatry. In Paul's day, people bowed before images that they had fashioned. Athens had temples with idols, as County Antrim has churches. Even today, over a billion Hindus, Buddhist syncretists, animists, and others bow before man-made images that represent a god and supposedly embody its essence. And you know, we needn't think that this is primitive and that it's something of history because Western people succumb to idols too. We maybe don't bow to objects of wood or stone, but we will bow to wealth, power, acceptance, significance, pleasure, fame, and peace. We hope these pursuits will reward our devotion to them, but they don't, they can't, and they never will. This is why Paul is warning us to look to the gospel of God and receive his son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. And this is what Paul will go on to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 to 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul is saying Christ is the only one who can save us and present us before the Father as his own because we can't save ourselves. And this is what Paul goes on to say in the next verses. And I'm sure, like me, at times you've wondered, can society become any more sinful? While in recent years same-sex relations have been glamorized in some sectors of society, Jesus confirmed that God's will for marriage has always been lifelong heterosexual monogamy. Alternatives may be fashionable, but they are expressions of God's abandoning people, as verse 24 tells us, to the lusts of their hearts and to impurity. And what these verses now do is reflect not a low, but rather a high view of sexuality. Dishonoring their bodies by same-sex practices implies that opposite-sex relations can have the effect of honoring human bodies. God intended marital relations that have the potential for fruitfulness and population on the earth. Old Testament teaching affirms the virtue and joy of physical intimacy in marriage. Elsewhere, Paul condemns the forbidding of heterosexual marriage. Paul is not sour on this. He seeks to warn readers of the grimy origins and consequences of misuse of one of God's greatest gifts. And the reason for this change of focus in people is, as we read it there in verse 25, they have exchanged truth for a lie. And once again, Paul is prophetic. Because this is what he is saying at his time and reflects every generation since. 
as humanity, we would rather listen to what pleases us than at times the hard truth of Scripture. And verses 26 and 27 affirm that God allowed humanity to follow its sinful way and to allow it to run its course. The outcome was and continues to be a loss of morality and the love of self rather than the love of God. I wonder if you're familiar with the name Rosaria Butterfield. She's an American professor, and her testimony is a fascinating one. And I read this in a February 2013 edition of Christianity Today. She described her younger self as a leftist lesbian professor who despised Christians. She says, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end it rather than deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. Breck shampoo, an American type of shampoo. But while she was researching for a paper on the American religious right and their opposition to what was her lifestyle, she began reading the Bible. And she published a critical article in a local newspaper, and she received numerous letters of complaint and opposition. She filed away the response letters in two boxes, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. But there was one letter that didn't fit into either box. And she says, in a kind of inquiring spirit, a Presbyterian pastor from New York State encouraged her to explore further her conclusions. He asked the question, how did she arrive at them? On what basis did she uh, decide on her moral convictions? She did throw that letter away, but she later fished it out of the recycling bin and stared at it. Eventually, she accepted the pastor's invitation to dinner and over the next two years became friends with Ken and his wife, Floyd. She recalls, they entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. But behind all of this, Butterfield continued to read the Bible many times in multiple translations. And finally, one day, she found herself in the pew of that pastor's church, and she felt conspicuous with her butch haircut. And she says, then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. Rosaria Butterfield is now a pastor's wife. And she still champions morality, justice, and compassion. But rather from a liberal agenda, she still seeks after these things because Christ does. She came to faith in search of a foundation for what she valued 
drawn by the tender care of two Christians who graciously pointed her to that foundation. I've kept hold of that story because it speaks loudly and clearly. Butterfield sought fulfillment in self and all of the things that Paul lists that the world seeks after. But she discovered through the word of God that that was never going to cut it. She was in Christ. It was in Christ that she knew escape from God's wrath on unrighteousness and freedom from sin. I wonder, is that the freedom you know and the escape you know? There's no mistake. It's not to fill three minutes of why we do an assurance of pardon. It's so that we know without shadow of a doubt from God's very word, he says to us we are forgiven, that we have escaped his wrath, and we are free from our sins all because of Jesus Christ. This is the life Rosaria Butterfield now knows, and she is blessing the church because of her witness and testimony, and she has some very good books to help us along the way. Are you trapped? Are you enslaved? Because if you are, the answer is Jesus, so that we may avoid, we may avoid God's wrath upon us that our sins so deserve, that we can be free from it when we come in Christ. Our time is gone, but we're going to look at the last few verses in simply one paragraph because verses 29 to 32, well, they're not a pretty picture, but they're a realistic one. Listen to these verses again. Speaking of the world, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I wonder, like me, do you recognize the people that Paul's talking about? I saw one of them looking me in the eye this morning in the mirror while I shaved in preparation for church. You see, the reality is these words can describe each and every one of us. Every one of us is hopelessly lost in sin. We've wandered so far from the glory that God intended for us. And that wonderful world that he created, that place that he gave us as our home, that place where everything was very good, well, we've lost it and we're lost. See, we're going to finish this evening, but in this passage, we've seen clearly why the world needs the gospel, why I need the gospel, and why you need the gospel. Left to our own devices, we run from our Creator God. Left to our own devices, we choose ways of life that destroy us in the present and will destroy us eternally. And for the time being, God's judgment expresses itself in allowing us to simply get on with it. 
Paul's description in this chapter is not God's ultimate judgment on sin, though. For that, we have still to wait before there will be good news, because there is worse news to come in this letter. But if we are wise, we will wake up to what we've already seen in chapter 1. We'll see already how far gone we are and how lost we are without Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Reading, reading chapter 1 of Romans, we want to throw ourselves entirely on the mercy of God because it's the only thing we can do. As Paul later writes in Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you know that salvation? Do you know the very heart of the gospel itself? so that you know for certain you are avoiding the wrath of God and you are escaping the punishment of sin. But are you assured of that? Are you drawing near to God so that His voice is louder than the voice of the world that would so easily pull us away, that would so easily bring us into verses 29 to 31? Are you trusting in him each and every day to take that next step? Because we all need to. I need to. Because there is only one gospel that can save us. And it is the good news of Jesus Christ. Let it be your good news tonight. As we stand firmly on Christ our risen Savior. Against the tidal wave of this world. It's liberal agenda. And everything it would throw at us to say, we are wrong. Oh no, we are right. And I do not say that arrogantly. I say that because it is the word of truth as contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. It is the supreme standard. And it is in it I trust. Will you join me and place your trust in it likewise? Let's pray. Our Father, we sung a moment ago that we are a moment that led us into that wonderful hymn of the Savior of what has been done for us. And Paul says we needed it done because your wrath is on unrighteousness. And so we don't want to face that. Assure us of our salvation if we know salvation. And Father, stir our hearts and draw us closer to you so that we will escape such a terrible thing and know the joys of eternal salvation. May we respond well to you this night, and indeed forevermore. Amen.